the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Patrick Miller. He's speaking to the topic, Running with Scissors, how technology advances in industrial control systems are outpacing uh, business risk management um, and you know what needs to be done to keep pace. Patrick is a managing partner at Archer Energy Solutions and the founder, director, and president emeritus of EnergySec. Now, we're going to play the first few minutes of my interview with Patrick, and then you and I, Andrew, will come back into the conversation. Um, and now, without further ado, Patrick Miller. Patrick, hi, how are you? I'm doing well. The subject of today's interview is going to be the trend towards adopting new ICS technologies and the security baggage that comes along with it. So my first question to you, Patrick, is what does the threat landscape look like for newer technologies? What sorts of security issues do these new technologies bring with them? Yeah, yeah. The the. As everything goes digital, you get the standard kind of digital baggage that, that comes with it. Um, you know, in the analog world, it was pretty much you had to have physical access uh, to affect anything by and large. Um, in the digital space, of course, you, you get all the, you know, the components for everything from patching to vulnerabilities to, you know, remote access, you name it. Um, but I think the, the difference is, is, you know, since you had to physically be there in a lot of cases to, to do anything to the older equipment, um, the newer stuff, you know, you have adversaries that can can reach it from, you know, arguably anywhere, uh, depending upon, you know, their ability to get in through various means. Uh, in some cases, it still requires physical access. But I think the, the difference is, you know, the adversaries, I guess they have the, the best way to characterize it is they have three things that you don't. Um, they have people, they have money, and they have time. And give it a, a, any sort of digital path in, um, they can basically take long enough and use however much resources they need uh, to find their way in. You mentioned the three things that they have that we don't. Uh, so what do we have? What are our three things? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, we, ha we have at least, you know, one of those things at any given moment in time, right? Um, we can either have the, the people, we can have the money, we can have uh, the time. Um, rarely do we have all three is, is really the mix. It's kind of like the engineering, you know, uh, quandary of, you know, do you want it fast, good, or cheap, you know, pick two. Um, so it's, it's a similar situation, but I think some of the bigger challenges is the, the skill sets are still ramping up to keep up with it. Uh, the technologies coming in, uh, are, can be challenging to secure, challenging to update. Um, so it just, it takes a lot of human time and human skills at, to solve the problem. And it does take a lot of money because you're, in a lot of cases, you know, this is paying for the time and paying for the equipment and, and those kinds of things in, in terms of if you need to do anything like, for example, take an outage or add equipment. Um, and then, of course, just the time. Um, it, it's, it's not something that everyone has. It's not an unlimited resource, especially in a business, because, you know, as everyone knows, time is money. One of the larger trends, it seems, when we're talking about newer uh, ways of approaching these sorts of problems is overlapping operational and information technologies. Um, is this, in your view, 
a productive, a good idea, or something to be wary of? One of the things I like to say about this is we're, we've, we've always characterized it in terms of OT and IT. Um, you know, literally today, and maybe even starting yesterday, but uh, definitely going forward, it's just T. It's, it's all just technology at this point. Um, you can't buy um, analog equipment from your vendors anymore. They just don't make it. Everything is digital. So your, your choices from now going forward is going to be some sort of a digital component. It's likely going to look more like IT every single day going forward. Um, so uh, it's more or less yes they're they're converging there's 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 no question about that but i think it's 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 already happened and the trend is more toward kind of commercial off the shelf it ish stuff in the ot space based on what patrick is saying uh the advantage is squarely on the bad guy side well in a sense it is um i mean think about about it networks what's the common wisdom for IT networks, um, there are you know gigabytes of data, email, web pages, downloads coming into a a medium-sized or a large IT network every day. Um, all cyber attacks are information. Every bit of information can be an attack. That's a lot of bits of information coming in that might be an attack. A measurable fraction of that traffic is attacks. Um, you know, the, the, the IT teams uh, deploy lots of defenses. They catch lots of the attacks, but they never can trust that they've caught them all because there's so much coming in. And so on an IT network, and, you know, Patrick is talking about IT and OT coming together. On, on an IT network, um, the only safe assumption is constant compromise. We must assume that we have been compromised. We must... Uh, you know, deliberately and systematically go out and find the compromised equipment because we, you know, we have to believe it's out there. Find it, isolate it, erase it, restore from backup and repeat. The problem when we get into the OT space is that there are physical consequences, not just informational consequences. And, you know, human lives, damage transformers and, and plant downtime is not, you know, none of this is something we can restore from backups. I also want to talk about uh, convergence. I think this just T uh, concept from Patrick um, might be one of the more, um, I don't know if the right word is, is debatable points that he brings up because in, in past examples of discussions we've had on this very podcast, we've actually emphasized that the methods and the solutions for IT and OT diverge to such an extent that you do have to treat them as separate entities. So Andrew, I want to know from you, um, if we're talking about this concept of just T, Patrick has given us some of the benefits. Um, what does it mean for risk? Well, you know, to to a degree, I have to agree with, with Patrick. I mean, we, you know, we have... Uh, looked at differences between IT and OT uh, in, in past podcasts. But, you know, let's look at the technology in a typical modern industrial control system. Windows dominates the higher levels of the control systems. The historians are Windows, the HMI workstations are Windows, the even the a lot of the uh, communications accumulators are Windows. There's Windows everywhere. And, you know, they're running on Ethernet switches, they're using TCP IP, they're often using encrypted communications, they're using TLS, they're using all of the um, hardware and software products at the high levels of the industrial network that we see 
on IT networks. And so, you know, one of the the uh, one of the trends we're observing, you know, so I'm I'm changing the topic here, but this is not what what uh, you know Patrick spoke to, but you know, sort of evidence of the convergence is intrusion detection. There was a day when people said um, it, it does no good to put an IT style intrusion detection system on an industrial network because the industrial protocols, the industrial systems are all so very different and the IT systems do not understand them. Well, we are increasingly seeing uh, industrial enterprises wanting to connect their IT intrusion detection systems to industrial networks because the highest levels of those networks look and feel like IT networks. Now, the consequences are different. Um, the, the, uh, you know, the deeper down in the network, things start getting different. But uh, at the high levels, you know, I have to agree, it's, it's all just T. Okay, so then if it's maybe a, a middle ground that we're after, um, I actually asked Patrick about this very question about how to bring everybody together under this just T concept. Uh, let's cut to that. Right, but now I'm thinking about the actual folks who are doing this work. I mean, they're the, if I'm to reduce the matter, the people who have become accustomed to those older analog types of machines, and then the newer folks who are all about mobilizing the data. So if we're to treat this issue as that sort of capital T, um, is there a right way to accommodate the, the people who are doing this work to bring them all together? Uh... Yeah, I mean, getting them to work together, it's it, it's it's more or less a renaissance. I mean, there, there isn't, it's going to be challenging to continue to do things the old way um, just because of the, the technologies don't really work that way anymore. Um, the, you know, I guess the quandary that we're stuck in, the, the bigger issue is right now, and, and even for, you know, a significant amount of time, real, realistically, you know, upwards of possibly 50 years, because a lot of this equipment has a very long lifespan, um, you're going to be doing both. Um, there really isn't a short path um, unless you're starting an infrastructure organization from scratch right now, right? Um, but it, 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 in most cases, it's going to be a situation where the, you know, kind of the, the older guard and the newer guard are going to have to figure out how to work together um, and, and get this done. I think the, um, the trick really will be somehow we're going to have to probably, you know, trip over ourselves and fail a little bit, but um, uh, we're becoming very dependent on the IT-like technologies uh, for all of these operations. Um, the problem we've got is in some cases when they fail, um, well, actually, I would say in all cases, when they fail, um, there isn't a way to go back to manual, right? Because the, the technology doesn't allow for that. It's once it's it's not working, it's not working anymore. So we're kind of losing touch with uh, the manual craft and the the manual way of doing things. Somehow we're going to have to figure out how to to continue to do both and not just go one path or the other. We're going to have to augment the manual stuff with digital stuff and use digital stuff to support uh, the manual methods. It's it's not the least expensive path, um, and it's certainly not the most you know efficient from a, a time or cost uh, approach. But it is I mean, if you need your infrastructure to operate, uh, it's going to have to be able to operate. It, it'll have to operate in both. So I think there, what we're really looking for is some sort of um, you know I guess collaborative or coherent merge of the two disciplines in a way uh, that really can provide not security but resilience because. 
frankly, security is, is nice to have, but what you really need is the opera- operation to continue to run. Andrew, can you talk a bit more about how uh, the coexistence of digital and analog technologies can improve resilience and what resilience fundamentally is? Sure. Um, Resilience is something people have been talking about for the last few years, especially in the electric sector. Um, Resilience is, in a sense, recognizing that nothing is secure, that uh, there's always the possibility of compromise, and then ask, you know, and ask the question, what happens to the power grid when something is compromised? And uh, the ideal, I think, is that everything keeps running in spite of the compromise. You know, the the, the generators keep producing power, um, the you know the, the the transmission lines keep transmitting it, but this is not always possible. Um, some kinds of attacks are going to impair production. They're going to impair uh, parts of the power grid. And, you know, then what happens? Well, um, to, to Patrick's point, you know, when power flows were impaired in the Ukraine in 2015, they turned off the computers and went back to manual control. That's a kind of resilience that minimizes downtime. Um, you know, they had power out somewhere between one and eight hours, depending on the substation. They had 30 substations they had to hit. So that's a kind of resilience as well. If we cannot tolerate uh, compromise completely transparently, then at least we can recover quickly. And of course, if we want to recover quickly, well, there'd better not be significant equipment damage because we can't quickly recover a damaged turbine or a, a burned out transformer. So. You know what resilience means. You know it's a it, it it's an easy word. You throw it out there and say, um, "Hey, let's do resilience." What it means is everything from, you know, systems so redundant and so partitioned that compromising one does not impair operations, all the way. That, you know, it's a very high tech solution. All the way down to the, the 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 very low tech solution of manual backups, manual operations in a pinch, and you know, in between. Um, some control systems, the ones that prevent equipment damage, um, are the ones that uh, we need to secure even more thoroughly than average. Because if we want resilience, we'd better not suffer any equipment damage. You know, there is no worldwide inventory of large high voltage transformers. These things are custom built. Damage enough of them, and you know, the the only alternative is to start shuffling transformers around between substations because you can't order three and have them show up the next day. It doesn't work that way. Building off that, my next question for Patrick was, how's this going? How's it going in the real world today? From where you're sitting, what is going over uh, smoothly? And what have we sort of been taking a longer time to learn and work on? Oh gosh, um, smoothly. I'm not sure any of it's going real smooth right now. <laughs> it's it's pretty bumpy. It's a pretty bumpy path. Um, the the new technologies coming in, they're um, they're being sold as the latest and greatest, and they do all the, the fancy things, and everybody wants the you know spinning uh, 3D widget uh, for their you know things like what would used to be just a, a simple indicator, right? Like a plus or minus uh, indicator, and now you need some you know fancy widget for that. Uh, the reality is you don't need a lot of the stuff that's coming out. Um, you don't need a Java web server on your transformer fan uh, speed. It's just one of those things. Um, it's, so I, 
I guess we have to get the vendors to understand that sometimes we just need a purpose-built device. <laughs> Even though the digital capabilities are there, it's, it's just because you build it, we don't necessarily need it. Um, so I would say that the things that are going, I guess, better, um, uh, some of the organizations are moving too fast and some of them are going slow enough. Um, I don't, I, I'm not an advocate of saying, you know, stop everything and slow down because innovation kind of has to happen. But we need to, you know, I guess there are some that are innovating a little bit better. Um, they're not approaching it with um, let's stuff everything into the device. They're adding just enough capability to give us some additional data uh, because in reality, that's kind of the true benefit of going digital versus analog is you actually get more operational data. Um, more data means better visibility of the environment and then you can operate your environment with a lot more capability to manage due to, you know, I guess, greater visibility into all the process and, and different areas of the process you couldn't see earlier. So that, that part's going well. You know, I'm actually surprised that, that Patrick would characterize this transition as going over not so smoothly. Um, just from an outside observer standpoint, it looks to me that, you know, if we take industrial systems relative to the greater IT environment out there, um, that industrial systems are less vulnerable today than the IT space. Am I wrong? Well, it, it depends very much on the industrial enterprise. Some enterprises have thoroughly secured their systems, others have not. And I think what, what Patrick is speaking to is the, the, the tension going forward, saying, uh, you know, from the, from the IT side and sometimes from the vendor side, we're seeing a lot of uh, push, a lot of pressure for more features, more data, more everything. And of course, um, you know, the question is, uh, what's this going to do to operations? Because you know the the first question that that we have to answer whenever we make any change to an operations environment is how likely is this to kill someone? The answer is never zero. The probability is never zero. This is what engineers do; they figure this out. And the next question is sort of the more mundane question that is people uh, we spend a lot of time on is how likely is this to impair continuous correct efficient operation? How likely is this change, new equipment, new capabilities, new data, new whatever, new connectivity, how likely is it to uh, impair production? How likely is it to trip the plant and, and cause a, a shutdown? Um, so, you know, what, what Patrick is pointing out uh, in his own way is, you know, he, he, he described one, one, uh, one example saying um, the, the, the businesses that are uh, sort of profiting the most that are, are making the most progress here are the ones where they're doing just enough. They're not taking all the fancy new widgets and throwing them into operations. They're picking and choosing. They're, uh, you know, doing, making incremental improvements to improve efficiency, to improve operations, to improve customer satisfaction um, without uh, impairing operations. So this is this is the, the, the perennial tension between IT and OT. And you know, the fact that it's all becoming T means these practitioners have to be talking to each other, have to be figuring this out. And, you know, the example he gave us was, you know, take the middle road. Don't say no change because then there's no improvements in efficiency. That's sort of the extreme OT position. Don't say change everything because then we may well impair operations with all of this change you know, triggering shutdowns and, and causing unpredictable behavior in the in the physical process. You know, there, there's a middle ground, and these practitioners have to find it. This is the trick. 
Speaking of connectivity, my next question for Patrick had to do with his philosophy regarding uh, big data. So now that you've touched on the benefits, could you perhaps talk a bit about the drawbacks from a security standpoint uh, to this big data approach? Yeah, um, it, it, I mean, really in, in no simple, or I guess in no uncertain terms, really, it's, it's, it shifts the threat landscape from just the operational component. I mean, if an attacker wants to affect your process, everything from taint the process, cause an explosion, you name it, all the full spectrum of what you can do to the industrial, uh, I guess, industrial process or industrial uh, kind of concept. Um, it's now not just that, but typically the enterprise side of most industrial areas really wasn't that, you know, there was much less concern there than there was uh, for the actual industrial piece. Um, it, it shifts the landscape, the threat landscape more toward that industrial, I'm sorry, the, the enterprise side, because basically that's where all the money is. <laughs> I mean, that's where all of the, as that data comes out of the industrial side and over to the enterprise side, gets reused, repurposed, packaged, analyzed, um, and it changes the business component. That's where all, I guess, the, the new intelligence goes. And frankly, data is money. So that's Usually, now you're not just looking at someone that's trying to affect, you know, the process, but you're looking at criminals and a completely different type of threat actor as well. So it, it you get to now you get to secure both sides, I guess, with the same um, level of concern, with, but with completely different tactics. So it kind of it, it changes the capability needs for the organization from a, organization from a security perspective, um, but it also you know kind of increases the level of effort. You know, I should have asked him at the time uh, about these completely different tactics he's talking about. Um, do you know what he's referring to there, Andrew? Well, I can't say what, what he was referring to, but generally speaking, yeah, there are different tactics we use uh, for different kinds of defenses. You know, the thing about the thing about big data is that it, it almost always moves. It's almost always never used in the place where it's produced. And now we have large amounts of data moving. We, we often have connectivity where we didn't used to have connectivity between systems that we didn't use to have connectivity. And of course, all connectivity is a, is a threat. Attacks can pivot through connections. You know, in terms of the different tactics, let's look very quickly at the different kinds of data. Uh, you know, data coupled with connectivity, data that moves from OT to IT, what are the, the consequences there? Well, if the data is stolen, if the data is tampered with, um, you know, we might lose value in the, on the IT side and the business side. We might um, make wrong business decisions. We might say, oh, this is costing too much or costing too little and make a wrong business decision, do things differently and, and uh, you know, not perform optimally as a business. So when data moves from OT to IT, I think of it as monitoring. IT monitors OT and then makes business decisions. There are business consequences to the compromise of monitoring data. Anything that moves back is control. Um, you know, every message that moves back into an OT system, whether it's a request or a command or a status or anything, every message that moves in causes computers in the OT network to execute instructions they didn't use to execute. This is a kind of control. Now, you know, the hackers get in and say, well, what can we do with these instructions? Control data 
is, in my experience, enormously more important to OT than to IT. Controlled data, um, you know, has the potential to alter the physical process, beneficially or not. And so, um, you know, the tactics on the on the IT side, um, the IT people tend to be focused on preventing theft of the data and preventing uh, tampering with the data, uh, so that they can profit from the data and they can you know make good business decisions on the ot side everything coming in is subject to inspection to verification to validation is whatever's coming in here going to do us damage and so people um on the ot side uh care enormously about the usually much smaller little bits of data that are trickling back into OT, telling OT what to do, they care enormously that that stuff is accurate. So th this is, you know, my understanding of, of uh, an example of the different kinds of tactics that you use. On the IT side, encrypt everything because you want to protect the data and prevent it from being stolen. On the OT side, inspect everything um, because attacks you know, incorrect commands can come through encrypted connections just as easily as they come through plain text connections. Now, it was at this point in my conversation with Patrick that I sort of realized we were talking a lot about these changes to the industry, um, but I hadn't answered a fundamental question, which is why? Why is any of this occurring? So I'm, I'm interested in, in figuring out uh, what the motive is that's driving all of this change. Um, how much of this transformation that we've been talking about has been driven by uh, technology needs um, from the ground up, and how much of it is motivated by uh, business incentives and decision makers higher up on the food chain? I would say a lot of it's coming from leaders higher up. Um, like I said, data is money. I mean, everyone calls it, you know, data is the new oil, whatever trope you want to use. The reality is data is money. Um, and most of these organizations, industrial organizations, yes, some of them are, for example, municipalities, and they do it for the public good, but most of them are businesses, and they do it for money. So they're always going to be driven by that as a primary motivator. Um, you know, and if data is money, more data is more money. Um, with the new digital components, I mean, typically what you would have in the, you know, I guess the old days, right, um, you'd have a bunch of analog equipment they would get um, basically telemetry and it would come in through some form of an aggregator and then it would come back to some system to present operational awareness, more situational awareness. Um, you, you would keep some of that in a historian, but you didn't keep all of the data. The capability is now literally every single sensing endpoint, you can introduce more sensing endpoints and all of them generate a data stream. Each data stream is money. So that's essentially what is driving a lot of this. Yes, it is operational efficiencies and, you know, gets, getting a better product, a more reliable product. Uh, but the reality is it's also money. Do you see any issue with that viewpoint of viewing data as money? Or is it just a helpful motivator uh, to promote change with these technologies? Yeah, I think it's a helpful motivator. I think it's pretty much the only way to think about it. Because if you don't, recognize that fact, then you're probably going to behave in a different way. Uh, you'll secure things in a different way. And it's, again, it is, it is still about the operational environment. It is still about, you know, the importance is still there, if not more. Um, and attention should be devoted there. But that also means you, you get to do all of that, you know, and more of that, but you also have to secure the enterprise side where the, where the data is all going. 
Andrew, can you give us an example, uh, a real life example of what Patrick is alluding to here? Well, I can give you uh, sort of a simple one. Um, we're talking about, again, Patrick's, uh, you know, strong background is in the electric sector. Uh, he mentioned uh, municipalities, electric distribution companies. These people serve consumers. They serve you and me. Um, and data about our power usage, yours and mine, and millions of other people's, um, could be helpful in terms of, uh, you know, advertisers targeting us with, I don't know, um, you know, sales pitches for solar power, sales pitches for more efficient refrigerators, who knows what. And so, you know, insight into consumer behavior is is worth is worth a lot of money. So, you know, there's one example. I struggle a little bit more to, to you know, find an example. If I'm a power generation utility and I have terabytes of data about my equipment and my power generation, how I'm going to sell that data to anyone. But on the on the consumer side, it's to me, it's absolutely clear. Changing gears, I asked Patrick about the higher level decision makers that play into this. How do ordinary security professionals relate to and converse with higher level business folks about these security issues? Right. The typical security professional um, just doesn't speak, you know, higher level management, executive level, board level, um, doesn't speak that language. Um, they speak an entirely different uh, language. Frankly, it's, it's not, um, it, even in most cases, they may or may not even understand the industrial components. It's that a lot of the business side of this um, just doesn't speak, you know, at the same level. So if you're communicating uh, to to those people and trying to help them understand the risks, um, they smell money and they're going to be moving fast and their motivations are going to be entirely different than you know the security professionals. Um, the typical security professional is to take the knob and turn it all the way to off and then back it up just enough until people stop screaming. Um, the business side is going to run as fast as they possibly can until something explodes. Um, so somewhere in the middle there, there's a balance and at the management level, the people that own the risk effectively um, we, you have to communicate up to them in a way that resonates with them. Um, the things they're concerned about, you can't use the word security at all, frankly, because the minute you say security, you know, especially things like ICS security, their eyes roll back in their head and they kind of freak out because they don't understand it at the level they know they need to, but it's frightening to them. Um, you got to talk about things like, you know, market confidence, shareholder, customer confidence, competitor advantage, even things like credit rating, um, impacts to regulations, loss of revenue, um, you know, insurance benefits, um, those kind of things. It, it's got to be um, how are how can you translate what you're doing from a security perspective or what you want to do from a security perspective? How will it benefit that level of risk reduction, basically? I guess my question now is: Is this relationship productive or harmful? I mean, I could definitely understand the perspective of somebody in security saying, you know, if only these people who didn't know how to do my job weren't telling me how to do my job, then I could do my job better. Uh, of course, on the other hand, uh, perhaps that money incentive is a good way of driving uh, productive change for, frankly, a field that's been notoriously outdated for a while. Um, so in your view, is this a positive or a negative kind of relationship? 
I think it's good. It's healthy. I mean, I, frankly, I think it's healthy for both sides to to kind of come to the table and, and discuss things. I guess we are seeing a general trend of um, upper-level management, even boards of directors, uh, becoming more security aware, understanding more of the terms. Uh, so at least they're, they're doing their part to try to understand the environment better and understand what those risks really mean. I mean, the reality is it's their responsibility, and that, that is their job, is to, to govern the organization uh, in a way that, it, you know, it makes the maximum amount of profit with the least amount of realized risk, right? So you have to take some risk to make money, but you still got to balance it. Um, that's their job. They understand that. They, they know they need to learn more about it. Uh, many of them actually are getting educated. Um, so I think, the, you know, the, the corollary has to happen on the security professional side is you kind of have to learn some of their language um, and, and kind of meet them somewhere near the middle. Uh, but I think it's very healthy and very productive when you can get that, that, that to work, basically. So what Patrick is saying is that we all need to learn each other's language. Or is he saying that we are learning each other's language so all is well? Well, uh, the truth is, um, when I was preparing for this recording here, I uh, I replayed this section a couple of times. And, you know, after listening to it very carefully, I think what Patrick is saying makes perfect sense on the IT network. Move fast, gather data, worry about who owns the data later. This is this is the way you do things in... in uh, these are the kinds of risks that you take on, on an IT network. Uh, you know, my own preoccupation is physical consequences. When we talk about tampering with relays and triggering an, uh, you know, a cascading failure on down all the way down the East Coast, what I hear Patrick saying is that OT security professionals have a strong case to make about risk as well. The IT people tend to drive uh, risky behavior in order to uh, increase business benefits, and the OT people tend to uh, push back on the risky behavior when it looks like the consequences are going to be unacceptable. And I think the point he made is that um, we, you know, these, these two, these two uh, perspectives need to come together, need to find a middle ground that is acceptable to the business. We need to enable the new business opportunities that you know the big data gives us without incurring unacceptable degrees of risk. And, and this is the, the, the dialogue that I think he's, he's talking about. Assuming everything is sort of going towards digital, what does this space look like at that point when we're all done transitioning? It looks very different. <laughs> um, the organizations become um, basically there's there's two different approaches. The organization will still continue to do its industrial endeavor, right? Whatever that might be, electric, water, gas, chemical, you name it, manufacturing, whatever that product is, they're still going to do that. Um, they're going to have a secondary product, and it's going to be the product of their data. It's going to be some analytical product or component, and they're going to have two basic revenue streams. Um, so both of those revenue streams are going to drive the business, uh, and one side may lean heavier than the other at any given point in time, but it's going to be much more, um, much more dynamic, um, and the capability for them to understand their process, look deeper into how the process operates, um, because they have so much more data, and then they can aggregate that data, they can look for trends, they can they take all of that, analyze it, and repackage the analytical products and sell them back to vendors or, you know, other market participants, uh, business partners. So they're going to have their industrial product, and they're going to have the the industrial data product as well. 
Um, that that is basically going to be most indu industries going forward. They're not going to be just one or the other. They're going to have this, you know, kind of, I guess, ecosystem of now what is just going to be technology. Um, and all of that new breadth of what used to be OT and IT now merged into a much bigger pool just called T has to somehow be uh, protected and managed. What do you think, Andrew? I have to agree. I, I think Patrick's last point is the real lesson here. Technology needs to be managed. You know, he's described from the IT perspective, the ideal, the goal is that data flows everywhere. It flows everywhere securely. It flows everywhere unimpeded. What does securely mean, though? Modern attackers take advantage of permissions nowadays, more often than they take advantage of vulnerabilities. Unimpeded means, in the worst case, the attackers have access to what they shouldn't. The trick is to impede data flows to the attackers. The trick is to impede data flows and impede data access to an extent to achieve risk reduction goals. This is what security is all about, reducing the risk. These you know, risk reduction goals, large or small, um, both for IT systems and for OT systems, these goals need to be part of the overall business and you know, data and technology improvement planning process. These goals need to be part of the planning process so that um, we are, are uh, you know, taking the deliberate risks, the risks that the business has decided to take uh, instead of, you know, blindly forging ahead and, and taking who knows what risks without understanding both ends of it. And with that, let's turn back to my interview with Patrick, where I changed the subject again to talk about his experience on another side of this coin, regulation. You, Patrick, uh, used to work in the regulatory space. So I want to know from you, how does regulation fit into this larger picture? Um, regulation, right, yeah, regulation's good. Um, it, it, it can be helpful. It can also be harmful. I think that the trick with regulation is balancing um, the intent of the regulation against the unintended consequences. Um, I mean, I've seen regulation work. I was in the electric sector, um, worked within that space, even wrote some of the regulations, became the regulator, implemented them at the utilities. I've uh, seen all sides of that. Um, it's, I guess, the, 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 the challenge is um, you, you can prescribe action, but you can't prescribe attitude. And the regulation is effectively trying to change their attitude about how they, go up, how they do their business. Um, you, can, you can force them to do something, but you can't make them want to do it. Um, some regulation can be written in a way that actually creates a motivator instead of, uh, I guess, more or less a carrot versus a stick. Um, so I guess it, it, it should be done, but it should be done carefully, slowly, managed by, hopefully, by seasoned regulators um, and not in the knee-jerk reaction. As I always say, you know, fast regulation or quick regulation is always bad regulation. Um, but I, I, pref I prefer seeing a lighter hand with regulation than a, than a heavier hand and a more prescriptive hand. Um, I think you know, oddly enough, stuff like um, if you just did data breaches, for example, and you um, mandated that you have to disclose data breaches, penalties would be given if you didn't disclose. Um, if there were things like some components of safe harbor around it so we could get some some real data around what the threat actors are doing, what's actually happening. Because right now, the situation is if something happens, you're lucky if you actually get a disclosure and they openly talk about it. Um, the Norsk Hydro event recently is a fantastic example. That company was very transparent about what happened, and we're all learning from it. Um, if that were somehow worked into regulation, that would be 
obviously the much bigger benefit for the greater good. So there's ways to do it well. Not a lot of countries um, or areas um, are doing it well right now. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of learning how to uh, to regulate things like this just because it's 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 not we're not regulating things like physics. We're regulating, you know, you know, we're regulating against a malicious actor that is dynamic and changes and hackers are always going to move faster than laws. Patrick touched on uh, Norsk Hydro there. Can we circle back to that for a moment? Sure. Norsk Hydro was, uh, what, a month ago now? A um, bunch of uh, bad guys worked their way into the, the Norsk networks and seeded, planted uh, ransomware throughout the networks and took a lot of stuff down. Norsk announced this right away. They were very open about it. Um, I don't recall if they if they announced that the bad guys, that the ransomware had propagated into industrial networks. Uh, but um, what they did was switched, and if I may switch gears for a second, Norsk produces electricity, hydro is electricity, but they're also a big producer of aluminum. And the connection there is that aluminum smelting uses enormous amounts of electricity. And so it makes sense that a company who understands electricity thoroughly gets into aluminum smelting because of the, the, the very strong connection there. So they had to shut down a lot of their aluminum smelters, or rather they didn't shut them down. What they did was um, they converted them to manual operation. So they fell back resilience. This is what we're talking about earlier, but they did have to shut down, I think three or four um, sheet aluminum uh, rolling plants because they, you know, they didn't say why, maybe they didn't have manual operations, but you know, it, they, they were shut down for a period of days. They were switched over to manual for a period of days. They were very open about the progress of this and eventually, uh, you know, cleaning out the bad stuff and, and coming back online. So that was, that was Norsk Hydro. And what's safe harbor and why is it useful instead of regulations? Um, well, safe harbor is is a legal thing. Um, safe harbor is is a kind of law that protects an organization from certain kinds of lawsuits, or maybe protects them even from criminal criminal prosecution if the organization does things a certain way. Uh, for example, um, I think in some jurisdictions there's safe harbor there's, uh, provisions saying that if an organization encrypts personal data for consumers. Um, then they do not need to publicly disclose certain kinds of breaches because the stolen information cannot be used. So, uh, you know, to, to Patrick's point, um, if we offer a carrot to organizations, protection from certain kinds of lawsuits in exchange for disclosing breaches, that's, that's you know, the, I think the point he was making about safe harbor. I don't know, that, that kind of strike. Parting thoughts from you, Andrew? Someone hacks... You know, an IT system, it's one thing, but if you get a hacker who connects into a railway control system and two high-speed trains collide into one another and hundreds of people die, uh, will we at that point really say that that rail company is off the hook for lawsuits as long as they tell us in vivid descriptive detail how that hack occurred? Um, that's a very good question. Um I'm not sure I know the answer. It sounds like a podcast topic all by itself. Fair enough. Any final thoughts or subject matter we haven't yet hit on? Actually, I would say yes. Yes, I do. It's, um, the, the landscape is, is definitely changing. It's getting um, smaller 
components are going to get smaller. They're eventually going to disappear. They're all going to be connected. They're all going to be generating data streams. You're going to be basically swimming in telemetry and data and a million different things to try to protect um, from multiple different angles and multiple different platforms. Um, I think the challenge for the security professionals is to, frankly, stop whining. Um, the problem is hard and it's challenging, but, you know, that's why you got into this. You didn't get into this because you were, you preferred something boring. You, this is dynamic and it's interesting and it's it's a difficult problem to solve. So my call to the industry is get busy, uh, figure out how to solve this problem because we're all smart people and we have a lot of great ideas and, you know, trying to slow it down and complaining about it isn't going to get us anywhere. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to be uncomfortable and weird, but we're going to have to figure it out. So my, my, my challenge is to, to get busy and let's let's solve this problem. Parting thoughts from you, Andrew? Well, um, I would, I'd want to reinforce one of, one of Patrick's lessons here to remember. Um, you know, the whole conversation here has been pointing out that dealing with the inevitable future here, uh, you know, data everywhere, dealing with that is not about complaining or resisting progress. Um, but each of the, you know, the historically IT and OT teams brings to the T conversation, uh, you know, something important. You know, I agree completely that, that pulling data from even the deepest and most important and, you know, closest to the hardware control networks, pulling data from those networks is inevitable. And so a lot of the data management disciplines that are currently instinct and, you know, second nature to IT teams need to be uh, working their way into OT practice. Conversely, as we start to make control decisions in business networks or in the cloud and, you know, have those decisions communicated back into the physical process. And if those decisions are wrong, well, now we have physical consequences. Um, you know, these are risks that the OT people understand instinctively. And this is a perspective that they bring to the table. So, uh, you know, both of these perspectives, I think, are important. The the, the T world is not that, you know, um, one perspective or the other has taken over. It's that, uh, you know, the new the new era of, of you know, combined ITOTT um, is reflecting uh, both of these perspectives to the degree that makes sense for that business, given the business opportunities, given the, the tolerance for risk. Uh, you know, it, it, it goes both ways. Both, both teams have important contributions to make here. Well, with that, I would like to thank Patrick Miller for sitting with me. And I'd like to thank you, Andrew, as always. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. I've been Nate Nelson. I will catch all of you in the next episode of our show. Bye for now. Bye.